Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO. And today we're back in the Project Purple Podcast studio with a familiar face, a familiar name that hopefully our audience has heard before. But Chelsea Bunyer, our director of development, how are you? I'm good, Dino. Really happy to be here. I'm not in the office all the time. So uh, when I get to be here, it's awesome. Uh, and when I get to talk to you on the Project Purple oh, podcast, it's go. even better. So <laughs> excited I, I, to be here. I love it, Chelsea. Well, we always like you uh, when you're here in the office. We wish you were here more. You do work out of our Boston office. So having you here in the home office in Connecticut is a special treat. And today's podcast, Chelsea, I know we've talked about this, um, is, you know, for audience listening at home is going to be all things fundraising. And I think, you know, we've done, this will probably be close to 90 episodes that we've done on the podcast. And we've had a couple of episodes where we focused on some ideas, but I don't think we've ever really broken it down. And I think one of the things that we do really well, if I'll give a plug for us, I guess, is that we do really stress the fundraising with our participants. And I think that's really the success. I mean, it's not, I mean, it is the main reason why we've been some so successful. I mean, we don't do a lot with corporations. I think we do, We and let me rephrase that. That's our room for growth for us. Correct. Yeah. We, we don't, when you look at the lion's share of where our fundraising dollars come from, it's from individuals. It's not from corporations like, Coca-Cola, as an example, or pharma. We don't get any money from pharma directly. Indirectly, we get matches, and, and that's a big part of the peer-to-peer model that we're involved in. But when you look at the success that we've had over the last you know, four years, which has been kind of the, 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 the most success that we've had you know, year over year over year has happened right. in the last five years, you've been here for a lot of that, you know, has really been from the individuals and just the peer-to-peer, people going out and getting fundraising. So I think we've done a really good job of that, and you've played a big part in that. Yeah. Um, well, I think that you know the the way in which you have have started this organization organization and uh, built relationships uh, has has built a really nice foundation for that to happen. Um, because you know while while we do work hard uh, at kind of developing this peer-to-peer model and motivating our supporters to fundraise and engaging them. Um, it, it kind of happens organically and naturally because uh, we we focus on just building those relationships from the very beginning. Uh, and I, I think people are motivated to fundraise for the organization for that reason. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think one of the things I think, you know, there's a saying that I say often that it's not rocket science, but there is a science to it. And I think in anything that you do that you become successful in, whether it's playing a sport, fundraising, selling air conditioning units, right. whatever that may be, <laughs> uh, I think that you, you become really good at doing that. And I think that's something that we've tried to do here and foster and continue to, to evolve and become better and in articulating what we do and, and how that happens. And there's a whole process to that. So we'll, we'll get into that here in a little bit. But for our listeners at home, maybe this is the first time because we are 90 episodes in. I think the last time- 90 well, episodes. Almost 90, yeah. yeah, which is pretty wild. You were on the New York City recap, but you know, we didn't, we didn't, we went into New York City. Right. Right. As we do with all our guests, most of the time, except when we do home office ones, <laughs> like the New York City Marathon, we didn't really give the guests an opportunity to kind of give their background, but right. 
For those listening at home, and maybe this is the first time they they've have heard your name, tell the audience a little bit about your background. And as I always tell our guests, you can go as deep as you want or as high level as you want. I, I think I have an interesting background. I, I like to kind of tell a little bit about my story. Um, I I grew up in a town of 800 people, and I like to start there because when I say that, you, you know, you might be imagining something specific. You can't. Mayberry. You can't really imagine exactly what this place looked like. Um, it, Shannon, Illinois, town of 800 people in One the middle. Traffic light. No traffic, no lights. traffic lights, one traffic light in the county uh, by the time I was in college. So a uh, very small town area, uh, farmland, a lot of cows, hog farmers there. Um, so I, I definitely had uh, a unique childhood when it comes to, you know, talking to people that, that grew up in the Northeast. Uh, it's, it's very different than than you know, what I just hear people talk about. Yeah, just a bit. Um, Closest Starbucks or Dunkin' was probably quite a bit. Yeah, there, that that didn't exist where, where I was growing Even up. Even today? It, it a, does today. Today? Today, not in Shannon, but yeah, uh, about 30 minutes away, there's a Starbucks. Yeah, so that was... So there is proof big, that, that there's That was big Starbucks news that happened everywhere. a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's everywhere now. <laughs> yeah, start, well, you're either, you know, the odds of a Starbucks or a Dunkin' now. Right. You know, even our former town where our office was i haven't shared this with you but there's a duncan going in beacon falls yeah wow who would have thought who would have thought <laughs> town of six thousand. true you know yeah huh so there is one literally almost in every part of the country here yeah in the United and, and States. in new england it's, yeah. it's in on new every england corner. yeah there's one on every corner yeah um but i think i i talk about my background because i i think it's a unique part of of who I am. And, um, it's kind of brought me to where I am today. So, um, I grew up in a small town where I was a, a three sport athlete. That's kind of all there was to do there. Um, and ended up, you know, becoming a, a pretty decent basketball player and, and played at the, the college level, uh, at Wagner college in Staten Island, uh, and also got to play overseas a little bit and, uh, coached for a career after that. So, um, during that time, uh, I really, really developed kind of this competitive edge and, and I love competition. Um, I love to just, you know, get out there and build relationships with people. And that's kind of led me to the the fundraising world, the nonprofit world uh, where I am today. So. And you are competitive for the listeners at home just a little bit. Um, yeah. We have had some office Olympics that we've done and that competitive streak has come out. I don't. I don't know if Dino's even seen the the full competitive streak yet. Um, you know, we, when I first got here, we talked about this. We were yeah. supposed to play we supposed a game to play, of one on one basketball, but never happened. You were coming off a rehab of your Achilles, yeah. and I, I, you know that just never happened. We did have the ability. Well, you know, there, the, now we're into winter, so I don't know if it'll happen. But you know, the the we will bring up. You know, we did play some basketball in June in Minnesota that was kind of modified a bit, which was the Papa shot. That's so we, true. So, yeah. you know, we, we won't bring that up to the audience because we don't oh, want to. We, we can bring that up. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, we, you know, for the audience listening at home, we did, we did get to basketball. It was just Papa shot and it just, you know, I think you won the first game, but then I went on to win like the best out of five series, like pretty handedly. I think, or it was like we went five uh, he, games, but I won four. Pretty in a hand row. And handedly. We're gonna put that the air quotes out there for pretty handedly. We don't have a vlog, so if the vlog was here and there was a recording, <laughs> we could do the air quotes as I, I usually say on most podcasts because there's usually something that involves like 
you know, a, a pictorial or something going on. I'm just going to throw it out there. There was a ski ball sweep right after there, that. There was, and, but uh, ski ball was I kind of. I came out a, on, on top for the ski for, ball. For the Papa sweep. shot, for your, you know, being, uh, <laughs> you were an All American in high school. I was that, not an All American. Close, close enough. Close, close I, enough. I was, pretty close. I was an All State. All player State. In a big state. In a big state. Yeah. From a small town. Yes. I think there's a song about that. <laughs> but you had a great career at Wagner, played overseas, but I still beat you in Papa Shop That's pretty true. handedly. It That's was true. and it was it wasn't like forty two to forty eight. It was like ninety something. Oh wow. Like 58 wow. Or something. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think there's it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I'll just I'll give I'll give it to you. You need it. You need the confidence. Chelsea, you know who the boss is, right? <laughs> there we go. Uh well thank you for sharing that with the audience and uh you know, I, I've got some questions here that I want to roll into because we do want to talk about fundraising. So in your experience with fundraising, what do you think has been, and, and you've been doing this now, how long? Almost We're going almost on four years, yeah. fully being involved in endurance peer-to-peer. -peer. Here at Project Purple, we raise well in excess of a million dollars a year. Yeah. Uh, we're not the largest um, in the space and we're not the lowest, but we raise a fair amount of money. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the, the podcast, you know, it's all from individuals. But you, in your experience in the close to past four years here, what's been the best fundraising that you've seen? And, and maybe that's kind of a loaded question, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of fundraising. But I want to start there. And then I've got a couple other questions that I, hopefully this will take us to. But who's kind of done it the best and you don't have to necessarily name the person's name, but maybe just give the, the, uh, the background or the idea possibly about that. Well, and this is on the spot. I yeah, didn't give you any questions. For sure. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and say that when it comes to fundraising, I, I always kind of go back to my athletic career and, and, and relate things, uh, to what I experienced as a player and a coach. Uh, and, a player's always at their best when they're playing to their strengths, right? So I think the people who I've seen who are our most successful fundraisers are the people who know how to use their networks that they have um, and and use that to their advantage. Um, so whether it's a, a person who has corporate connections and they're willing to go out to those people and ask them for donations, they're going to be successful as long as they're, you know, connected there and willing to to talk to those people. Um, or if it's somebody who, uh, you know, has friends who like to go to events, uh, they like to go to brewery events, they like to go to ball games. Uh, if that, if that type of person can utilize their network and get some of those events going and bring in money that way, that can be, you know, a, a huge money-making, uh, you know, season for somebody like that. If, if, if they're willing to, utilize it and, and realize what they have there. So again, going back to, to strengths, I think uh, somebody who really knows how to use their network is, is going to be successful in fundraising and just ha they have a willingness to ask, right? Well, yeah, I think that's probably the one big key is that right. willingness, right? And regardless of whether, and for the audience listening at home, again, regardless of whether it's for animals or, uh, you know, we, we hope, pancreatic cancer and project purple naturally but there, there's so many great missions so many great causes i think you just have to be willing to have the gumption to ask for that cause that is near and dear to your heart right something that you just said though that just and i just i've been taking notes here again if we had a vlog people would see this but strengths and weaknesses 
And I think the one thing that I think deters a lot of people is that they come to the charitable space, whether it's going to an event, participating in an event, running, walking, whatever it may be, hiking, spinning, cycling. And they have that fear of, oh my God, I got to ask for money. Yeah. And a lot of people do have that fear. Makes them feel uncomfortable. But if your strength is you love to go to breweries and drink and you incorporate that strength, and I'm just using that as an example, right? That fear of asking kind of becomes a non-issue, right? Because you're doing something that you love to do, something that you're truly passionate about, but you're incorporating one of your strengths and eliminating that weakness of asking for money. Right. And, and and to the people who are, you know, with you, supporting you coming to these events, um, it, it doesn't feel like they're giving money. It feels right. like, you know, they're, they're there to support you and also to have a good time doing something that they love to do. So um, to your point, it doesn't necessarily have to be an outright ask. ask yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things, and I think this is maybe one of, if we had a, if we use one of the whiteboards here in the, the studio, but you know, if we had a, a checklist or a myth to debunk would be that it's always about an ask when fundraising. And that's not the case. True. And I think some of our most successful events and fundraisers, or I should say fundraisers that put on these events that raise thousands of dollars go to their strength, whether that's entertaining at a Breer Hall, whether it's going for a spin event and right. running out or paying paintball, playing paintball or doing something really fun. And, you know, the raffles, we've had people do the calendar raffles. We've had people, we just had someone jump in cold water. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, I, I think that, and, and that necessarily is not a strength, but I think that relied on that person's strength in terms of, you know, getting people to engage and not necessarily, again, making an ask for like, hey, give me $25 for this mission that I'm super passionate about. But hey, I'm going to do this thing because that's the personality of that person. So it's really, really powerful there. You know, I mean, I know I asked a kind of a loaded question, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think you're spot on with that. And I think that's maybe one of the, the myths that we could kind of debunk here is like, it's not a direct ask. It can be if if you feel comfortable. Well, yeah, I you mean, know? some people, be, some right? people, some people have that, and, and that's that works, right? And I think that that willingness, if someone is willing to make the direct ask the first time around, that happens, and it may happen the second, third time. But I think, as we know, over time, donors become a little bit fatigued, right? And that's another thing that's talked a lot in the charitable space is this donor fatigue. And let's define that. I mean, you know, for the audience listening at home, this might be the first time they've ever heard what donor fatigue, or the term donor fatigue. Right. I, so, I mean, donor fatigue, you know, starts to happen when you feel like you've, your donors have given to you X amount of times. And, and that amount of time might be different for, for each person. Um, but I, I think if you're connected to the cause and you get involved when you're already connected to the cause, um, you know, maybe a, you lose a loved one to the disease or something and uh, you you do an ask for, for these donations to support the cause during that time when you're going through something or, or you recently lost someone, as you kind of get a little bit further away from from that event happening and you've asked people for money several times, it starts to feel like... Uh, you know, 
you're a little bit too far from the cause, or maybe like, you know, Joe has given you, you know, a hundred dollar donation three times and you don't really feel comfortable asking him again, or uh, he didn't give the last time because he's given so many times. So you start to feel like you can't go out to that network of people that you've hit so many times recently uh, and ask them again directly for a donation. So that leads us to thinking about more creative ways because you, you feel that donor fatigue. So I've got a question here for you. And this just came to mind. Do you think donor fatigue, and I've never thought about this until this conversation that we're having, but this, this brings up a great point. Do you think donor fatigue is for what you just articulated? Or do you think that donor fatigue is from the participant not articulating well enough to that donor of all the great things that has happened since they first made that ask three years ago or four years ago. So if you're, and, and I, I think, and, and let me define that mm-hmm. because I think if you're, if you're a participant that's constantly fundraising for a particular charity or just fundraising in general, there's only so many times that someone can give you a hundred bucks. But if you are doing this once a year and you make this kind of your, your yearly thing, Right. In essence, you shouldn't donor fatigue should not technically really occur if, if there are once a year articulating properly to the but then if they're just you know, there's some people that are super philanthropic that support so many great causes because there are so many great causes. And I think that could happen really quick with donor fatigue because you're constantly hitting your friends and family for all these causes. And there's you know, unfortunately there's just not enough money to go around, right? And, and, and you know, uh, to so many causes from, if you if you have that same pool of people, right? Right. If at the end of the day, if they budget $1,000 a year for philanthropy and you hit them up 10 times, but now you've got an 11th time and their, their budget is spent, like there's not really anything you can do there. Right. Well, I think, I think you bring up a good point. I think that, um, you know, if, if, and we've seen this happen, uh, with with some of our really great fundraisers, um, fundraisers who are very good at articulating, uh, this is where your money goes. This is where this is how much we've raised so far, and this is what your money has done for the cause. But we need more help. Um, if you're if you're good at articulating that, I think you have a much better chance of of not running into that donor fatigue. Um, but I do also think that it it depends on your network as well. Um, it helps if you have a network that's also super invested in the cause and, uh, you know, maybe doesn't have any problem giving time and time again, uh, whether it's, you know, they have the funds to do so or, or whatever that reason may be. Um, I, I, I do think that um, donor fatigue still exists, though, even if, if you're communicating uh, that, that message as well. Um, it just... There, it, it depends on the group of people. Yeah, I, I I think you can never get away from it, right? There's always, I think, going to be a percentage of it, and right. like I, there's a saying, and I think you've heard this: like some will, some won't. So what? Like you have to kind of move mm-hmm. on, right? And I think some of those folks, you know, again, they, and we've seen this from the participant level, and you also see it from the donor level when they are impacted by that particular mission or cause, they get involved, right? And then they feel kind of, and there's no right or wrong to this for the audience listening at home, that 
their job is done in a way. Like they've they've felt fulfilled in the sense that whether they've run with us in memory of a loved one lost and they feel fulfilled by that one experience and some people feel the need to come back and there's nothing wrong with either one. And I think that happens with donors as well, quite possibly. And the other thing that happens too, and, and we've seen this where donors and participants become super passionate about our mission because they're impacted by it, but then life changes and something else happens and they get impacted by another awful disease or they get inspired to do something for another great organization. And that's just, that's just evolution of life, right? Like, right. you know, they lose a loved one to pancreatic cancer and then, you know, another loved one, um, you know, succumbs to another cancer or another ailment or another disease, or they have family members that, you know, something else happens, some other tragic event and they rally that mission, which is great. You know, again, there's, there's so many great organizations that are doing so many great things. I think the key is to try to get more people engaged clearly, right? Like if right. more of the people in the United States and in you know, the world were more philanthropically minded, then I think we'd eliminate we'd a lot a of issues. Place. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the shift gears and stay in the same kind of vertical here, but and I always like starting with like what not to do versus talking about that second and uh, we'll get to what to do. But what are some of the things that you've experienced that fundraisers should not do? Fundraisers should not do. Yeah, so if we had, if we could put together a list here, like a top, I wouldn't say top 10, but we can go five. Like what are some things that they should not do with their fundraising efforts? Um, I think that the first thing that comes to mind for me is that if, if you're going to ask people for money, uh, you should show that you're invested in the cause. So whether that's a self-donation or, uh, you know, showing it another way, you've been involved on social media, you should show that you're, you're invested in the cause um, in some way, you know, crafting a, a fundraising page that's, that's solid and, and reflection of, of you. Um, as we always say, just don't put the page up, put your story on there, put a picture, make it personal. Right. And, you know, make the first donation, whether it's $10 or $25 or whatever the amount may be. Let me see. What are some other fundraising don'ts? Um, you're stumping me a little bit here. Uh, so, like some some big don'ts. Because I feel like I have all of these do's, Right. But what are the don'ts? But what are the don'ts? I think the one of the things that always I always preach about is thanking your donors. Don't forget to thank your donors in a timely fashion. Yes, and I think there's there's very there's very strategic ways of doing this uh, to get more donations. You know, on social media, clearly, I, I think where social media and and this is probably another don't is just don't rely on social media. So there's another one that I'm going to throw out there, you know, and, and I think the one thing that's happened, especially, you know, we're in a, uh, a very politically charged environment here across the world. And a lot of times social media can impact what we are trying to do on a philanthropic or a philanthropic venue um, because of what's going on elsewhere and other verticals. But so that's where I would say don't rely on social media as a, as one of the things not to do. You know, I think you really have to kind of cover all your bases, but I think thanking your donors is critical and that's something not to do like in a timely fashion. And I think every time I've run, 
you know, I've tried to really thank my donors, you know, within, you know, I always preach kind of 48 to 72 hours. I know sometimes that's hard depending on, you know, travel and life and, you know, you might be getting a lot of donations. So it's just hard to get back to everyone. Well, I mean, you're right, but here's the thing. You get a, you get a nice email Email. every time a donation is made. If you're, if you're you're on a fundraising platform, when a donation comes into your campaign, you're going to get a nice email that says, Susie donated hundred dollars to your campaign, right? Um, so uh, you can think about the different ways you want to thank your donors. Uh, but something that I do uh, when I get a donation is I text that person immediately. Yeah. Uh, and and you can go into other ways of thanking them later on if you have more creative ways. But I want that person to know right away. I saw it come in. I'm really grateful for their their donation. Uh, I thank them immediately as soon as I see that email come in. Yeah, I, I think there's nowadays this year with the uh, the way that the programs work on fundraising, it is really easy to thank people, yeah. you know, for making a donation and, and, you know, helping out with a campaign. And I think the other thing uh, that comes to, to note here, you know, with regards to thanking and, and you know, I, there's so many creative ways and I don't think you have to get super creative uh, with you know, thanking donors, just thank them, whether it is a text, an email, a card. I mean, there's so many ways to thank people, you know, with social media. And one of the the things that I've seen, you know, is, is it, it can be done on social media as well, which has become an effective way to just remind people about your campaigns. Um, you know, and that's the other thing that I'll, I'll say, do not do here as well as one of our not, you know, things not to do is, just post once to social media. I think if you are going to embrace social media, I, I guess maybe to take even a step back is to not have a plan. That's probably something that, you know, we should have started if one of the things that you shouldn't do is not have a Start plan. Start without just, a plan. Yeah, yeah, just wing it. And, and and we're not saying that you have to be super complex. I mean, we've had people, as you know, submit like full business plans on how they're going to meet certain sure. goals to be involved in certain teams. But I think you just have to have somewhat of an architecture or somewhat of an idea, let's say. And the other thing is we help with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, somebody might come to us and they have a really concrete idea of how they're going to put their fundraising plan together. And, uh, they don't, they don't even want our help. Maybe they're, they're golden. They, they, they have everything set up already. Um, but for those people who, um, are fundraising for the first time, uh, might be unsure about certain things, want some additional creative ideas. We're here to support people and guide people through that process. Um, you know, we, we do this every day and uh, we're, we're excited to help people do that. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things as I opened the podcast, as we talked about it, you know, it's doing this for the last 10, almost 10 years with this peer to peer fundraising model and just dealing individuals. We hit a lot of singles and we know how to hit singles pretty well. We're yeah. like the Pete Rose of the, of the charitable space. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a good analogy for those uh, who get the baseball, you know, the Pete Rose, but. We don't gamble, uh, but uh, but we do hit a lot of singles here. And that's something that I think is really Im- impactful and important uh, for those listening at home and to hone their fundraising skills. What else should fundraisers not do? Um, I would say don't be afraid to ask. Mm-hmm. So 
I know we said you don't necessarily have to ask, but you don't know until you try. So don't don't be afraid to do that. And, you know, after someone has donated and you've thanked them, um, the next time you decide to host a fundraiser or, uh, you know, get involved in a fundraising campaign, uh, don't be afraid to ask a second time. Don't be afraid to ask again. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I have another don't, by the way. I was ready to move on, but this is good. There's, there's, there's one more. Do not wait until the last minute to fundraise. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> well, we have seen some people. Absolutely. Okay. So <laughs> if, if you are a superstar fundraiser, you have, you have a, a great, great network, network of Well, people. which brings us back to that network. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we've seen it done before, you know, people can raise a lot of money in one day. Um, so, it, you know, it, as long as you're communicating that, uh, you know, you're going to be able to do that or uh, we've developed a relationship with you and and, and we know that you're going to be able to raise a lot of funds in a short period of time, then, then that's, that's totally fine. But I will say people who start fundraising earlier raise more money, period. Yeah. So, you know, why, why not do that three months earlier and then continue to to leave your fundraising page open, continue to get the word out. You're, you're going to raise more money if you start earlier. And I think for, and again, I'm going to exclude the people with that network that, you know, can raise thousands of dollars in 24, 48 hours a week, whatever the time frame may be, or if they're just going to throw down a credit card or, you know, pay for that themselves, which tend to be few and far between. Right. The experience overall, regardless of what you're doing, is so much more enjoyable when you start early, hit your goal, and then you can enjoy the journey, as we call it, right, um, of the training or whatever, and you don't have to stress about hitting a goal. And you actually, I think it becomes a lot funner in terms of, you know, hitting incentives or just having fun with it. And also, I think the other thing that happens, and we've seen this I wouldn't say it's necessarily, well, sometimes it's like lightning in a bottle because people realize like how easy it is and how enjoyable and how fun it becomes. And then that just grows. And then, you know, the fundraising goes from, you know, what was just trying to hit the minimum to like doubling, tripling, quadrupling Mm -hmm. what they intended originally to fundraise uh, because they have that ability to relax a bit and just enjoy the process, as we say. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right, let's move on to things to do. We talked about things not to do, which is there's kind of some overlap here that I think that we'll see. So what are some of the the key things, again, if we had a top five list of things to do when putting together a fundraising campaign? I'm going to say number one is tell your story. And that's, that's something that we preach here at Project Purple. Um, you know, what's your why? Why are you passionate about raising funds for Project Purple? Um, and, you know, I, wa- I want to say over 90% of uh, the people who run with us uh, are connected to the cause. They have a connection to pancreatic cancer. Um, so there's a story to be told there. And even if you don't have a connection, there's a story to be told to there too. Um, but the people in your network are going to, you know, feel your connection to the cause. They're going to feel that passion and that's going to result in more donations. And that's going to result in, you know, people who may not have donated otherwise um, deciding to make a donation. Um, you have to tell a story that's, that's kind of true to yourself 
uh, and something that's very easily repeatable um, when you're when you're talking about your fundraising and your campaign. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the the one thing that I have said a lot too that I, I'll throw here. I mean, number two is when articulating your story is to be as consistent as possible. Whether and what we mean by that is the story you tell face to face, the story you tell if you're going to use emails, the story you tell on social media, the story you tell if you're running an event and why people should come to the event and why you're doing what you're doing. So regardless of what you are doing and who you're doing that for, I think there has to be consistency in the messaging of why you're doing what you're doing. Agreed. Yeah, for sure. What else uh, could we share with our listeners about things to do? Um, and so this this is where we get a little repetitive, I think, but um, have a plan. Yeah. So uh, again, the people who are most successful in fundraising, uh, they fundraise to their strengths. They they know who they are. They know what they enjoy. They know uh, you know what their network of people is willing to support. Um, so just taking a few moments to to think about that. It doesn't have to take that long. You know, what think about what your network is kind of capable of doing and capable of supporting. Uh, and that should kind of help navigate what your your fundraising plan is going to look like. And I think too for the audience listening at home, and I mentioned this in the the things not to do and not to be repetitive again here, as you said, but I think plan you know, again, does not have to be, I, I think, you know, not to, you know, people get stressed out about asking for money and then planning, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think it has to be this large elaborate thing, but no, I think it doesn't. whatever your strength is in your network, and you always work with your strengths versus your weaknesses, right? Whatever that strength is, like come up with something, have an idea, don't just wing it, as we say, right? Um, and, it, and it could be something as simple as just jotting down or getting a notebook down and just writing down like what you really enjoy to do first to realize like where the direction's gonna go, like what you're gonna do. And then from there, you can kind of evolve and, and figure out like, okay, if you're gonna plan an event or if you're gonna ask people for money, who are the people that you think would give you money? and writing those 10 to 15 to 20 to 25. And I always like using numbers. So if your goal is a thousand dollars and you hope that everyone's going to give you a hundred dollars then you need 10 people. So who are the 10 people that are going to get you to that thousand dollar goal? And if it's doing an event, same thing. If you're going to charge a hundred dollars a ticket, or, you know, if you're going to charge $50 a ticket, um, you know, how many people do you need to fill in? Just back in, just use simple math to, to find that number. And those are some really simple strategies, I think, that all are, you know, anyone listening, I should say, and all of our participants can really kind of dive in and, and you know, kind of reverse engineer a bit and kind of figure it out. And it doesn't take a lot of, I don't think it's as complex you know, I mean, some people have come to us, as I said, with large business plans on how they're going to achieve their goal via right. social media and doing events and everything. But you don't have to get as sophisticated as that. Um, just have something in place, some sort of foundation, architecture, kind of framework, I should say, that you have an idea of how you're going to get to where you're going to go. And I think the other thing to do, and this is kind of in line with the plan, Chelsea. Yeah is be, be fluid with it and flexible because things do change as we know, right? Whether it's a venue, something happens to a venue if you're planning an event, 
So you have to be a little bit fluid in that and, and being able to be flexible a bit. And then also what may happen too is it may not work out because of weather or some circumstance that you don't really control. So you have to have flexibility in your plan that, you know, maybe, you know, the direct ask is a better way to go versus like planning an event. And that might be like a game time decision that you have to kind of, you know, work with on the fly. And in that case, you need to make sure you've given yourself enough time to, Correct. to raise those funds. Correct. So don't, don't <laughs> wait to the last minute because that can happen. And we've seen that happen. I mean, we've seen people do, you know, try to put on these, uh, events for their fundraising campaigns and whether it's the venue didn't cooperate or it was like a liquor permit and you know they 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 had to switch venues i know one year we had someone that you know had a brewery in mind and the brewery closed so now they were kind of you know last minute mm-hmm. not in terms of their fundraising but in terms of event kind of trying to be as flexible as possible to find another location and try to kind of piece this thing all together and and sometimes that does happen it doesn't happen often but sometimes the things that you don't control, you know, a venue going out of business, the weather, someone in your family getting sick possibly, or you getting injured, we see that plenty of times. We see that a lot. With our participants that, you know, they get injured and then they kind of lose focus a little bit in terms of what their, you know, their planning is just because they get injured and they have to focus on that injury versus focusing on fundraising. Right. Yeah. Kind of uh, is a little deflating, I think, to to be training for a marathon and be really excited about it, to be fundraising. And then, and then you're all of a sudden you're not running the marathon anymore. So that can be deflating, uh, but there are still strategies, you know, to be used to, to raise, raise those funds and, and support our organization because the, the programs that we support are really important. Um, and that, that leads me to another point when it comes to, uh, the dues of fundraising, um, you should know the organization's mission. So when you're talking about, you know, where, where the funds are going to go, uh, you don't need to have a detailed account of where the funds are going to go, but you should know, uh, what programs the organization supports and, you know, on a higher level where that money goes. So you can communicate that to your donors because that's, that's an important piece. You don't want to ask people for money if you don't know where that money's going. So for example, we have two programs, right? Patient financial aid and research, uh, and, uh, over 80%, over 85%, uh, typically annually, uh, for us goes to those programs. So I think just simply, you know, knowing the two programs that we support uh, is something that's, that's critical when you're asking people for, for donations. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think that goes back to what we talked about the network, but also articulating, you know, with that network, the reasons why you're doing what you're doing. And that always goes back to what the charity is doing or you know, the organization that you're kind of tied into and, and what they're doing with the funds that you're helping fundraise for them. Mm-hmm. So those are the things to do. We talked about things not to do. We talked about some best fundraising. Let's shift here a little bit and talk about what makes us different. Mm. I had the opportunity to... Full disclosure. <laughs> Um, about a year ago, I, I took a job with the Alzheimer's Association, great organization. Doing um, great things. Doing great things. Uh, absolutely. Um, and got a chance to see what it was like to work for a larger nonprofit and not, not all large nonprofits are the same either. Um, but I will say, uh, 
Project Purple is pretty special in in the way the organization goes about doing things. And I think the biggest thing that comes to mind that's different is uh, as as we continue to grow, hopefully this will remain the same too, is, is the relationship building and the personal connections that we make with people. Um, it's, you know, not impossible to do that in a larger organization, but I think it, we do it in a really special way here. And, and that's the foundation that the charity was built on. And, and that's one of the values we continue to, to strive for to maintain those really personal connections, uh, you know, from our CEO to, you know, our, our newest administrative hire. Um, we, we really try to make those personal connections with people. Well, you're only as good. I can speak from a, a organizational standpoint as your weakest link. So I think that's really, uh, and that goes for us here at Project Purple, not just on the staff, but I think just as a, a foundational message, you know, when we look at our teams and, you know, whether it's a team of five or a team of a hundred, we've had teams of 150, you know, we really truly hope that everyone experiences the same experience, you know, regardless of how much money they've raised or how much they, you know, bring to the table. And naturally, there have been some people through the years that have raised a lot of money, you know, at particular events um, and far have exceeded and gone above and beyond, you know, with a little of encur- a little encouragement from us, you know, to do so. But I think that's the one thing that I hope that we have done over the years, almost 10 years here is shown everyone, regardless of how much money they've raised, you know, the, the same amount of attention to detail, to help them, you know, help us do the things we're doing because without our fundraisers, we don't get to do the things we're doing at the end of the day. It's pretty simple. So last question here, what's the most important thing that we could leave with our listeners today when talking about fundraising going into 2020? Because I think the one thing is when you started this four years ago, this journey, it was a little bit different. We, I don't think we had the noise we have, and I'm, I'm picking on social media, but I think like that, you know, we just came off of Giving Tuesday. We're recording this the day after, and, you know, Facebook's doing this $7 billion match or something. Yes. Seven, I, how much is it? Is it $7 billion? I, it's a lot of money. It's I, a lot of money. They're matching, up, but... you know, and they were, they were encouraging people. And, and Facebook, to their credit, over the last two years has really put a a concerted effort into allowing charities the ability to fundraise socially. And that has uh, been a great addition to the funds here at Project Purple through the participation. I mean, it's not free. People have to set up pages on Facebook to donate and they link it back to Project Purple. And that's been a great extra money, as I call it. Um, There's pluses and minuses to it. We don't don't see who donates um, in a way, but... you know, we, we see who sets up the campaigns, but they've done a great job doing that. So just coming off of social media, you know, the expansion of using social media, which has evolved because when we started this back in 2010, like you could post to social media and you could raise a lot of money really quick because no one was really doing it. Right. Um, and there wasn't all this noise. There wasn't the political allegations and there wasn't the, the paid ads and all this other stuff that's going on today, Right. But now it's kind of funny how it's kind of come full circle a bit where now, like just coming off the day after, like it was just massively 
impactful to our Giving Tuesday. We had our best Giving Tuesday ever. I mean, we were up over 140%, almost 180% over last year in what we brought in with Giving Tuesday. So I think social media has played a part in that. And, and it's evolved just in like the four years that you've been here. Because even I think when we first started, we were using it. it. So like we're in 2020, like what's the best thing that we could say? Because I, we said one thing not to do is just don't post to social media. So we sound a little bit contradictory here a little bit, right? but I think he, I think I did say something about being flexible and fluid. Like you've kind of have to evolve. So, so you just kind of like, you hit the nail on the head with what I was going to say. Things are always changing and, you know, use social media this much, don't use it. Um, you know, what what stays the same is that I think to to be a, a good fundraiser, you just need to come with an eagerness and and kind of an open mind to to do what makes sense for you in your fundraising campaign. So I think if you as long as you show up with an eagerness to to do that, um, you're gonna be successful when it comes to fundraising. That's the key. Just show up. Yeah. It's key to life. Just show up, right? <laughs> That's I've heard that said a couple of times. Just show up. Well, Chelsea, thank you for all you do here at Project Purple. Thank you for being on the podcast once again. Thank you for dropping some knowledge on fundraising. I hope our audience kind of takes to heart some of these do's and don'ts and some of these ideas. And I, I will leave the audience with this. I think sometimes people try to create kind of this complexity about fundraising. And I don't think it's as complex as some people make it out to be. So it can be as complex as you want it to be and as simple as you want it to be. Correct. Correct. And as we say, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 